As one friend of mine said, like, if you're not starting from a place of fundamental sadness about this, then I don't want to talk to you. If you're coming from a place of anger, you're starting from the wrong place. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, November 10th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to talk about her latest piece on the war between Israel and Hamas and the frustrations of watching it as a journalist armed with facts, history, and context. It turns out there's little use for any of those things right now in the United States, where the war is being filtered through the lenses of tribal politics, simplistic language, and social media. Julia and I have some thoughts. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe to talk about what's going on in Israel and Gaza, as she termed it, or as at least our headline writers termed it on Puck, uh, the, quote, horror in the Holy Land. Julia, thanks for coming on. I know you've actually been struggling for a good month now to sort of synthesize your thoughts on all this, uh, you know, mm-hmm. from a personal and emotional perspective, as well as a journalism perspective. And you wrote this really wonderful essay that I actually, I identified with in a way as a journalist, oh. certainly not a Jew, as you are, but... Tell me why. Yeah, the thing that jumped out at me about your piece is you write about how you are watching the conflict from an, what you're calling an island. Your, your particular experience, and I'm quoting you here, that of a liberal internationalist Jew who escaped institutionalized state-sanctioned anti-Semitism as a child and remembers well what that felt like. You grew up in the Zionist tradition. You're now a journalist and a writer. You're coming at this whole conflict from the position of a liberal Jewish perspective, and you're not ashamed to admit it. But you also say that that's not really a widely shared worldview uh, as widely as you thought it once was. And maybe that's a sign of our age. We're roughly the same age, us, us old millennials. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I I was reading David Remnick's really nice piece in The New Yorker also about Israel this week. Um, it, it, I was reading it in the print magazine. I think it might be online at this point. And he was also, you know, he went over there. He talked to survivors of uh, one of the kibbutz attacks. He, you know, talked to his longtime contacts uh, in Israel, and he also spent time with with some philosophers and activists on the Palestinian side. And I just was like, what a unique position for him to be in as a sort of privileged Western journalist, a very good journalist, I should say, being able to migrate between both of these worlds and talk to 
people on all sides of this conflict. And that's sort of where I'm coming at this from. This is an American perspective. But I feel like as a journalist covering American politics over the last seven or eight years, at a time when tribalism and partisanship became the the defining feature of American politics, I was able to sort of travel between worlds and the, the you know the mm-hmm. two tribes and talk to different people. And then I would come back home and talk to my friends in my blue bubble <laughs> existence and just kind of fathom that there's another world out there that sees things differently. And covering politics before the Trump era, people did used to sort of commingle a little bit more and it wasn't as toxic and uh, the other side wasn't as exotic. And so that's just that's a small way that I sort of identified with your positioning here yeah. where it's like there used to be obviously this has always been a hugely divisive issue, but there used to be more common touch points. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but it certainly feels like watching the way American demonstrators are talking about this and using language that it mm-hmm. it, it just feels like there's not <laughs> there's not really a lot of people in the middle um, who can sort of bring the sides together to have logical, rational, (laughs) hopeful conversations. I think you're right. And on so many issues, people have bifurcated. And even, I mean, I saw this too, starting in the Trump era here in the US, which is kind of what I saw in Russia in 2014 and after when Russia annexed Crimea and invaded Ukraine, there was a kind of like new litmus test or a new thing that you would kind of just learn about people. And the political situation in 2014 in Russia, in 2016 and after in America, now I would say after 2021, but also after October 7th vis-a-vis Israel and Palestine, the political context has become so extreme Hmm. and the people in power are doing such extreme things, and not just the people in power, right? Uh, That when you see people that you know react to it and you see how they respond and how they accept it or don't accept it, you find yourself shocked and surprised and you want to be able to go past that and you want to be able to still see your friend or your family member for the person you've always known and loved them to be but at a certain point you're like wait but if they not just accept but celebrate the illegal annexation of crimea and buy into this ethno-fascist bullshit that putin is selling is that really a person i can be friends with Like, what are their values? And if our values don't align on something so fundamental, then there's not much for me to say to this person. I mean, my my late grandmother in her 80s lost a lot of friends over Crimea. You know, she just cut these people out of, she was this good dissident Russian liberal and she stopped talking to a number of people. And you know, when you're that age, losing losing friends is, you're losing them to death already and cutting them out was a big step. But yeah, I, I feel like the the externalities, the political realities that are, are, are so extreme and they're barging into our lives and into our personal relationships mm-hmm. um, and making people also react in extreme ways and expect 
I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you brought up the Trump era, and I'm thinking about how all the pushback that us journalists got for even interviewing people. You know, like people on the left would come at me for interviewing Trump people as if mm-hmm. interviewing them was somehow getting in bed with them, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, you don't want to know what the people who are whispering in Trump's ear saying, like are saying, you don't want to know that. You just mm-hmm. want to, you know, like it, it's forced people into these activisty positions and politics has again become just so personal. And because it's extreme on the outside, it becomes extreme in our interpersonal relationships. I have a friend um, who is Jewish and not particularly political, works in sort of business and tech and you know, after October 7th, what, you know, started seeing the, and this is someone who is a millennial who started seeing sort of the creeping social media posts about from the river to the sea and a lot of the sort of campus left activism creeping into his Instagram stories and a lot of the kind of identity based sort of almost like BLM kind of postings about like, listen up, this is why you need to support the Palestinian cause, et cetera. And he felt existentially offended and threatened by that those things just showing up in his feed. And he, to your point, was surprised that people he thought were in his sort of cultural, political bubble, but also his friend group, posting mm-hmm. things that he perceived to be deeply anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. And this, by the way, this is happening across the country and the world right now. Um, and he changed his Instagram story from and he's private on Instagram anyway. And he like created a close friends story on Instagram just to share stuff about Israel because he didn't want, in his mind, his messages and his, his stories just like polluted with attacks against the state of Israel, which he read he reads as, you know, anti-Semitic and it's fraying relationships. I see it all the time, especially among people like under the age of 40 on social media. I'm hearing about it, I'm seeing it in my feeds. Like people are posting polls and they're arguing and they're posting on stories. And it does remind me of the BLM moment. But what's different is that that was, at least among this younger generation, a signal moment where you could point to right and wrong, good and bad. Do you support racism or are you against racism? Easy. People are using the same tactics, language, rhetoric Mm -hmm. uh, for this moment in Israel. And it doesn't neatly apply <laughs> in ways that right. are infuriating but you, to but people. But if you say that, um, as I've had somebody say to me recently, is that that we're kind of hiding what should be a, a simple moral question under the language of complexity. So even saying that it's not the same, even saying that it's more complex is seen as moral equivocation. Mm-hmm. And it has on the left become... Like you said, it's like the BLM moment where you signal. You signal which team you're on, which tribe you're in, and it's a package deal. And if you support Me Too and if you support BLM, Mm -hmm. you support, you know, Free Free Palestine. Meanwhile, it's not within that, right? So, like, you have this, like, liberal team forming, just like you had a kind of Trump team that was, like, masks, no masks, red cap, right? Like... You have your own signifiers. What's challenging to me about, and and I have to say, like, I've deleted Instagram from my phone. I do Mm. not really look at it anymore. I go there and I post my puck articles and I get the fuck out. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, there are people I'm no longer speaking to, close friends and kind of more, not as close friends, but I just can't unsee what they have said about this. And uh, for a lot of them, it is just another issue. It's just mm -hmm. another social justice issue. Mm -hmm. For me and my family and people like me, it is a question of survival and physical safety. And, but then at the same time, I get people who are Jewish, friends, family members, who are so scared uh, from all the anti-Semitism they're seeing, just so scared, which I understand. But then even, but there I have to be like, okay, but you're in America, you're, you're fine. Nobody can rule out some crazy showing up to, you know, like I had a friend saying like, I'm gonna stay the fuck away from synagogues now. And I was like, when was the last time you even went? <laughs> you know, like, you're okay. You're not in Gaza. You're not getting buried in the rubble. Like the people who are actually in danger right now are Israelis and Palestinians. Like, mm -hmm. you're okay. But then, you know, back to the social media piece, when you have people talking about ending the Israeli occupation, when they talk about uh, free Palestine, when they talk about river to the sea, those are all things that make nice slogans, but they mean different things to different people. Do you mean, when you say the Israeli occupation, what are you saying? Are you talking about the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza? Are you talking about the whole thing? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, do you want a one-state solution? Do you want a two-state solution? Is there room in your vision for a Jewish presence in this area? And also, I think what has been really striking to me is to see my friends who are kind of on the cusp of that, like, Gen X, older millennial thing, mm -hmm. who grew up, were Jewish, born in the U.S., grew up in the U.S., and had you know, were the descendants of Holocaust survivors, but themselves, you know, they grew up in America, they were fine. And were quite left on this issue in the 2000s. And now they're like, wait, what the fuck? They just feel like it. the left shifted away from them. Mm -hmm. And as one of my friends said, who is the son of a Holocaust survivor, he said, what is baffling to me is that this language of intergenerational trauma of microaggressions, of discrimination, of systemic oppression, et cetera, for some reason doesn't apply to the Jews. And unfortunately, we've heard, you know, in some ways it was blame shifting, but you heard the right and the center right screaming about how anti-Semitism on the left was just as dangerous. Uh, I don't know if it's just as dangerous because these people don't have guns and they're not in positions of power, but there is kind of a sense of like, oh, you just see Jews as the all-powerful white kind of power class that is only taking care of their own tribe, like all the classic anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, and I think a lot of liberal and progressive Jews feel very alone right now. Like they don't understand how the movement that was behind Me Too thinks that raping women so hard that you break their pelvic bones is justified for anything, mm -hmm. right? And why it's justified when it's Jewish people involved. So. <sighs> I wanna take a quick break, Julia, and we come back, talk a little bit more about the language that's being thrown around right now. <music> 
This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to The Powers of Beer, everybody. I'm talking with Julie Yaffe about the war in Israel. Julie, we, we talk so much about language uh, in, in the context of the protests that we've been seeing um, on both sides. And uh, like, I think another thing that's sort of a little galling to liberals um, of perhaps our generation and older is that you are an internationalist Jew, Julia, but I guarantee you, and I, we haven't even talked about this, I know you've read at least two books by Edward Said. I know you've read at least a book by Rashid Khalidi. I know, in other words, that you, despite you know being Jewish, have made an effort to learn about the other side or you know the shortcomings of Israel and totally. the poverty of Gaza. You've tried. Totally. Uh, you also cover diplomacy, and this is something that frustrates me. Is and I interviewed Alyssa Slotkin a few weeks ago, the member of Congress from Michigan, you know, which has mm. about 200,000 registered Muslim voters about this. And she was, you know, while trying to talk about working with both communities in her state, she was upset at some of the campus protests. She pointed to one at Michigan State and she she used the term with me that some of these young liberals are being too loose with their language. Mm-hmm. Um I will give you a few examples. People are screaming genocide. War and genocide are two different things. They are cousins of one another, but they are two different things. Israel is raging war. They might theoretically be committing genocide. Uh, They could also not be, but those are not the same things. People who are screaming for a ceasefire. Joe Biden called Netanyahu this week and is pushing for a three-day, quote, humanitarian pause to negotiate the release of, what, 10, 15 hostages. Um, Out of 240. Yeah, that is technically a ceasefire. Is that what you want? Do you want a complete end to the war? Because that's not what ceasefire means. Free Palestine is another good example. From the river to the sea is another good example. And so this is a long way to say, you know, uh, that as someone who also, like, (laughs) one of my majors was, like, post-colonial studies. Like, I... I've read a lot of Edward Said books. Covering Islam is a great book that Said wrote about how the West uh, talks about the Palestinian conflict and cause. But he was a literary critic, and he cared about words and language. And I'm not saying he would be necessarily offended (laughs) by some of the posters and the sloganeering going on. But for people of a certain age who care about the world, you know that it can't be simplified. Diplomacy is Mm -hmm. extremely complicated, what Tony Blinken is trying to do right now. It's a bet him and Biden are making that by being close to Israel, they can help 
maneuver what Netanyahu is doing. It's a bet. Might not work. Um, but it's complicated. It's hard yeah. work. You don't hear a lot of protesters talking about the state of Egypt also blockading Gaza because of the relationship between the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas, you know? And so anyway, if you if you and just- And you don't hear, and you don't hear, honestly, which was what I find galling, is in the calls for ceasefire, nobody talks about ceasefire and release the hostages, right? And people talk about war crimes, but they only talk about Israel committing war crimes. Uh, even though what Hamas did on October 7th and is continuing to do by holding these hostages are war crimes, what they're doing by shooting rockets into Israel, into civilian areas uh, indiscriminately, also war crime, right? It's, again, I think so much of this is a product of youth and social media. And like when you're young, everything is simple it's easy everything's black and white you're very passionate about things and people protested th this very issue on campuses for the last 30 years yeah like this is not a new development no. suddenly that no but it has <laughs> become more extreme and more ra and the two sides and this is you know back to my original point is it does feel alone there's no virtue to being in the middle the middle Right. can be just, you know, an average and not neither right nor wrong. But in this case, it feels like the banks, you know, of the, of this body of water are just on all sides retreating very rapidly. And I think what you're seeing from these kids is that, you know, when, when people were protesting these issues 20 years ago on my college campus, there was no social media. There was no... There was nothing like you couldn't put it into 280 characters. That wasn't a thing. You couldn't uh, do a TikTok about it or an Instagram story about it. Uh, and these things, you could virtue signal by, you know, going to one of these protests, either the pro-Israel protests or the pro-Palestine protest. But you weren't just sitting in the comfort of your room blasting out shit that you didn't know what it meant. And... In, in like greatly reduced form. And uh, yeah, just this memification of the conflict. But to your original point, your other point about Edward Said, somebody sent me this and I posted it on Instagram and ducked, but <laughs> Nyla Said, who is Edward Said's daughter, posted this on Facebook. And these were her rules for the British commentariat talking about Israel-Palestine. And she wrote, here are the rules. You may not post long comments about Israel and Palestine unless you can answer the following series of questions without cheating. One, define Zionism. Jewish nationalism is not an acceptable answer. Please be more thorough. Two, who is Lord Balfour? Who are Sykes and Picot? Three, what are UN resolutions 242 and 338? Four, explain the laws of citizenship in Israel for European Jews, Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews, Palestinians with Israeli citizenship in Gaza and the West Bank. Please also discuss Jerusalem and license plates in detail. Yeah. And it goes on and on like this. And she says. Um, and she making the point that the, all, what we're saying, that the yeah, and she says, posters she says, are oversimplifying something and they don't really know yeah, what they're talking about. Yeah. And she about. says, if you can't answer at least six of these, you are uneducated on the topic and should sim simply be calling for a ceasefire out of the love of humanity. As in like, shut the fuck up and read a book. And maybe talk to somebody there. I think that's the other thing is that 
a lot of people who are so angry and passionate about this don't have skin in the game. They don't have friends and relatives in Palestine and friends and relatives in Israel, but yet they are so angry and so passionate and there isn't any, as one, fr one friend of mine said, like if you're not starting from a place of fundamental sadness mm. about this, then I don't wanna talk to you. Mm. If you're coming from a place of anger, you're starting from the wrong place. Julia, thanks so much for joining me. Everyone go please read Julia's piece up on Puck right now. It is thoughtful, nuanced, complicated, offers few solutions. <laughs> and that is reflective of the conversation we just had. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.